Well, hello my friends at futureprimitive.org. Today I am very happy to be on the phone with Richard Tarnas. Richard Tarnas, PhD, is a professor of philosophy and psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco and is the founding director of its graduate program in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. He is also adjunct faculty at the Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, where he teaches in the clinical and depth psychology programs. Formerly director of programs in education at Esalen Institute, he is the author of The Passion of the Western Mind, a history of the Western worldview that has become both a bestseller and a widely used text in universities. Recently, he is the author of Cosmos and Psyche, Intimations of a New World, and this book is published by Viking Press. So welcome, Rick. And uh, I'd like to ask you to begin with if you would talk um, a little bit about your first book, The Passion of the Western Mind. Well, thank you for having me, Joanna. Um, well, The Passion of the Western Mind was uh, the book that I wrote uh, in my 30s, mm-hmm. uh, actually the entire decade of 1980 to uh, 1990 was when I was writing it, and I, I was in big Uh, 
nation with the Copernican Revolution, of yes. course, being the, the most crucial threshold. And as I started narrating the, the, this history, this evolution, going from Plato to Aristotle and uh, into the medieval period, bringing in Christianity and so forth, mm-hmm. eventually it's as if a kind of epic narrative voice took over without any intention, actually, on my part, and until this full book, The Passion of the Western Mind, yes. was, was completed, and I realized, gee, this, this really should be published as a book on its own. That's the unexpected history of that book. Okay, okay. Well, I wanted to tell you that, you probably know, I grew up in uh, Paris, and I went to school in France, and so... I was very, very influenced and imprinted by the Descartian worldview. And so you have a parable in your book, Cosmos and Psyche, which is called The Two Suitors. And I'd love you to talk about how we evolved and how you show that we've evolved between a Descartian worldview, and a compassionate, sentient universe. Yes. Well, of course, Descartes, uh, besides being uh, such a major French philosopher that he would shape all the educational, uh, all the schools in in France, as you experienced, he was also uh, just really pivotal for the birth of the modern mind. Uh And uh, it's, it's somewhat... Um, easy in our time and in our circles to look upon Descartes as a as you know a villain or or uh, you know this essentially a negative figure. But in fact, he he was an extraordinarily liberating thinker as well, and he he helped open up a new uh, kind of intellectual independence that both you and I are in some sense. Uh, dependent on now or that we are enjoying the fruits of by his questioning so many fundamental assumptions that had been inherited from the medieval and the ancient theologians and philosophers he helped us come uh, attain a new kind of uh, autonomy a new kind of uh, capacity to question the worldview that we are taught by our parents or by our school and uh-huh. so in that sense Yes, but yes. the other side of it, of course, is that essential to the Cartesian understanding was a, a radical split between the human self and human mind as, as the subject and the world as an object. And he looked upon the entire natural world and even uh, his own body as being best understood as a, as a machine, as something that uh, was entirely unconscious
experiencing itself as being this lone object of consciousness that was a, an oddity in a vast cosmos that is seen as being purposeless and unconscious and without any uh, capacity for meaning. And so a fundamental spiritual estrangement was established, and that combined with a kind of hubris, a kind of intellectual pride and exploitative attitude towards the world, towards nature, towards all other forms of nature, animals and plants and, and water and earth, in such a way that uh, we are now, you know, as everyone knows, reaping the, the yes. unfortunate consequences yes. of that kind of exploitative objectification. Exactly. Yes. The two suitors uh, that you referred to, yes. the, the parable of the, of the two suitors that I have towards the beginning of Cos- Cosmos and Psyche, yes. is essentially a, it's a kind of thought experiment in which I ask the reader yes. to consider if she or he were the universe, and if they, speaking to you as the universe, if you're the universe, yes, and you're not a the mechanistic, uh, disenchanted universe of the conventional modern scientific view, but instead were a deeply installed vessel of mystery, if you were essentially mm-hmm. imbued with depths of meaning and spiritual mystery that similar to what the human being experiences in himself or in herself, well then, how would you feel if you were being approached by two different modes of knowledge, two different speakers uh, who wanted to know you, who wanted to understand your deepest uh, mysteries? You open up your deepest mysteries to the the method, uh, to the suitor that looked upon you as being fundamentally lacking in any intelligence or capacity for meaning or any intrinsic value in yourself, but instead he would be this suitor or this method of knowing would look upon you as essentially something that was radically inferior to himself uh, since you didn't have the intelligence and depth that he considered himself to have, and instead his purpose in knowing you was to better uh, uh, be able to um, predict and control you for his own self-enhancement. Yeah. Or would you open your deepest meanings and mysteries to an approach that looked upon you as being at least as imbued with spiritual uh, depth and with uh, intelligence and a capacity for uh, carrying meaning and purpose that would be at least as deep as what is in the human being, mm-hmm. and that the purpose of this kind of knowing would not be prediction and control, but would rather be something more along the line of overcoming the boundary between the object and the object, the self and the world, yes. in order to better, for some larger truth, larger reality to emerge from that new uh, unity. And this would involve not just empirical and rational faculties in a narrow sense, but would mm-hmm. would really draw upon many other human faculties in order to know the universe that would include our aesthetic capacity, our capacity for recognizing beauty, our beauty. capacity for uh, empathic and relational mm-hmm. understanding, and our somatic uh, and kinesthetic uh, and moral and intuitive capacities and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I basically just asked the reader, if you were the universe in that situation, 
which scooter, which which epistemology, which yes. way of knowing would you open up uh, most deeply? Yes. And I said that's basically the situation that we find ourselves in because the conventional modern scientific view it does render a certain reality, but it could be doubted whether it, it's getting real depths of the of the universe given its limited approach. Yes, yes. Thank you. Rick Tarnas, I want to ask you, uh, you uh, compare or you speak about astrology as Galileo's telescope. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, and it's interesting, by the way, that uh, we now know, uh, historians of science, that Galileo, who first, first brought the telescope into modern scientific use in 1909, but he also was a practicing astrologer, and uh, this has been kind of suppressed uh-huh. in, in recent centuries uh, by the you know conventional historian, historians of science. But in fact, the, the biographers and historians of science have now shown in recent publications that he was using astrology right through his life, and we, we now have copies of the birth charts that he used for his children and for himself, as well as his comments. So, I use the metaphor of the telescope to illuminate the role of astrology today because what the evidence that I set out in Cosmos and Spikey suggests is that the movements and patterns of the planets are in some kind of uh, fundamental correspondence to the movements and patterns of human experience, both at the individual level uh, but also at the at the collective level, mm-hmm. and these correlations between the human and the between microcosm and macrocosm, yes. as, as we would say, between the between the human sphere and the and the astronomical, mm-hmm. these correlations basically open up a new perspective on on the universe, a different cosmology that is that is installed that has a an interior dimension that is patterned by meaning. Not unlike Jung, uh, Carl Gustav Jung's uh, understanding that he started opening up in his later years as a result of his research, particularly with synchronicities. Uh, Also, he was using astrology very deeply in those later years, too. We now know that he was using birth charts and and analysis of the horoscopes and the transits for uh, most of his patients in the later years of his life in the 40s and 50s. So what I was suggesting is that the correlations that we now have available to us open up a window, a lens, into a new dimension of the cosmos that was simply absent in the mainstream modern cosmology, mm-hmm. looked upon the universe as essentially being a kind of flatland, a kind of spiritual void. Yes. Uh, it's basically random matter and energy evolving and moving in in ways that uh, have no underlying intelligence or purpose. Mm-hmm. But the astrology, at least this kind of astrology that the evidence is seems to be pointing to, which I've referred to as an archetypal astrology, mm-hmm. uh, because it it puts the focus on these great archetypal principles, what used to be called gods and goddesses, but Plato 
Graf has referred to archetypal astrology as a Rosetta Stone for the understanding of the human psyche. Could you speak uh, about your work with Stanislas Graf and elaborate on this? Sure. Well, Stan Graf and I began work together in uh, around 1974, over 30 years ago now, when we were both at uh, Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. And um, at that point, uh, we, Stan was the scholar in residence, and mm-hmm. I had actually come to Esalen to work on my doctoral dissertation. And we were particularly focused at that point on understanding kinds of experiences that people had, non-ordinary states of consciousness, particularly those that would be catalyzed by the use of LSD or other powerful psychoactive substances, yes. including um, you know, sacred vision plants and sacred medicines of various kinds like ayahuasca or, or uh, the psilocybin mushrooms, yes. so forth. And yes. in addition, we were also interested in understanding how some people, even um, without any use of a substance, but would just have spontaneous spiritual experiences, or what Stan later called spiritual emergencies, yes. power, powerful transformative states of consciousness. And Esalen was a place where many people seemed to uh, have these kinds of experiences, just uh, being there and yeah. participating in, in uh, seminars and workshops that that used powerful methods like, you know, Gestalt or Neo-Reikian uh, bioenergetic release, yes. uh, later holotropic breathwork, but also we are looking at the whole uh, clinical uh, research that over, over the years that Stan Groff and others have been doing using uh, LSD in, in a psychotherapeutic context, both in Prague, in Czechoslovakia, when Stan was there for many years, and then here in the United States, yep. the, um, particularly in Baltimore, the National, National Institute of Mental Health sort of program there. And we had been dealing with a, with a riddle, a, a kind of uh, mystery, which is why would two people taking the exact same uh, drug, the exact same substance, same quantity, uh, have radically different experiences? Good question. Experiences of heaven and the other the opposite place, um, mm-hmm. as, as anyone knows who's done 
done this kind of work, right. uh, this kind of uh, exploration. Uh-huh. The range of human experience is immense. It's immensely extended through these kinds of substances, and they can be um, very, very different in quality. Also, the same person in at diff- two different times using the exact same substance can have extremely different uh, experiences, one feeling uh, where one has the feeling of being in a, a state of euphoric, uh, mystical unity, a, a, a kind of spiritual ecstasy, yeah. uh, and another time could be in a state of metaphysical terror that That's lasts for right. hours. And wh- how could we understand that? And over the years, <clears throat> at the different research institutions, they had used, uh, Stan Groff and others had used all the conventional psychological tests to try to have some understanding of, as to why one person would have this kind of experience and another would have a different type or the same person at different times would have different experiences. And none of the standard psychological tests, like the Rorschach or the uh, TAT, the mm-hmm. thematic gap perception test, the MMPI, None of them had any predictive value for shining a light on this problem, and yet it's a pretty big issue, as, yes. especially in a therapeutic context where you're you're wanting the very best possible result for a person in a delicate state of consciousness. Exactly. So it came to our attention, you know, Esalen was a place where many different perspectives, different paradigms were were explored, and, and including esoteric ones and ancient ones, mm-hmm. ones from other cultures. And astrology was one of those that were explored and taught and discussed and at Esalen. And one day, someone who was a, a competent astrologer gave Stan and me the, uh, the necessary instructions we needed for how to calculate birth charts by... Uh, hand and also how to calculate what are called transits, which uh-huh. uh, transits are where the planets are now or at any time in the sky relative to where they were at a person's birth. Mm-hmm. And that basic astrological thesis is that the relationship between where the planets are in the sky and the birth chart, the horoscope, those geometrical alignments correlate with the kinds of experiences that that person would be likely to have at that time. So this had been, you know, a standard astrological uh, understanding for mm-hmm. centuries. And I, frankly, for both Stan and, and myself, astrology was the last esoteric perspective that we took seriously yeah. because it yeah. seemed so contradictory to the usual understanding of the cosmos. And it's also associated with sunshine horoscope columns in the newspaper and, yeah. and you know fortune telling of a relatively low grade uh, variety that we just didn't have a very positive image of it right. and, and in some sense we had a very distorted view of what it was about but having been given the basic mathematical instructions how to do it and we had some good handbooks or textbooks we explored, we had good records for when, for example, each of us had had our sessions over the years, mm-hmm. and we did the correlations, and it was just astonishing how precise and how consistent. 
kinds of experiences we had at specific times, specific years, and dates over the over the decades, yes. and what the archetypal complexes, how those were described in the astrological uh, textbooks or handbooks for the, the transits that we had at that time. So we that was uh, that opened up an analysis of uh, many other people's um, experiences. I at one point pretty much doing everybody who not only was part of the Esalen community, yeah. about 100 people, yeah. but also many others who were coming through, and then we were looking at, I then broadened out to much wider horizon of, of data, looking at what did Galileo have when he first turned his telescope to the heavens? Mm. What, what transits did Betty Friedan have when she wrote The Feminine Mystique and, yes. and catalyzed the women's movement in the 60s and, and so forth. So what, after some years of doing this research, Stan Groff and, and I came to the, actually is within a few months we could see that this was true, but it was, a, I guess, two or three years later that Stan used that phrase that you quoted, yeah. that archetypal astrology provided such a an accurate window into the, into both the character uh, of people's experiences, the archetypal character, but also into the timing of them, that he said it's like a Rosetta Stone. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it just gives us this capacity to translate the flux and kind of unpredictable chaos of, of a wide range of experiences that people have into a, a, a relatively uh, coherent and consistent frame of reference that gives us a, a great it, it not only opens up this language of the cosmos, as it were, but it also gives us a kind of tool for self-understanding and for the t- better strategically timing things and, and understanding the unfolding of things in time. Kind of like when you go out surfing or go out cycling yeah. uh, to have a to know which way the winds are going to be coming from on a given day and exactly. how powerful uh, are they likely to be and from which direction. Getting, getting a weather report, as it were, is very helpful for going out to sea. Well, yeah. this is a similar kind of thing for the interior uh, universe. Or a chart is a chart. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, this leads me to um, a question, which is, the fifties uh, Uranus Neptune opposition. Could you speak about that in relationship with the emergence of Hoffman, Huxley, and Wasson's work? Yes. Well, one of the things that I make brief reference to in Cosmos and Spikey, there are several big outer planet cycles that I give close attention to in understanding the cultural history and, and many events and trends uh, in the uh, particularly in the Western context. And mm-hmm. one of those cycles, towards the later part of the book, I devote quite a few chapters to, is the uh, Uranus-Neptune mm-hmm. cycle. And because Neptune in particular seems to be connected to that dimension of human experience that would be more involved, uh, the, the spiritual dimension, the uh, altered states of consciousness, yes. the everything from dreams and visions to drug states, to, but also 
counterculture were born at that time. But that's also so. when Albert Hoffman discovered LSD, first synthesizing it in 1938, and then accidentally stumbling on its psychedelic properties in 1943. Yes. And then um, when the two planets came into square in the 1950s, the square is a very dynamic alignment that brings in kind of unexpected activations of, of whatever archetypal complex is involved. In this case, this awakening to the psychedelic mm-hmm. experience yes. just really took off right during that period of the square. And this involved, you know, of course, Huxley and his experiences and then his writing it up in The Doors of Perception. Uh, it was when the Gordon Watson uh, brought back his famous research with the mushroom. Mushroom and Maria Sabina. That's right, with Maria Sabina. It's when Stan Groff first had his uh, first LSD experience in 1956 in Prague and began his his uh, great research. It's when Tim Leary Timothy, had yes. his first psychedelic experience uh, in the later part of the 50s. And there was also, by the way, it's when that first started being used as a, in a therapeutic context, not, not only in uh, Prague, but also in course, Hollywood and L.A. And Washington, and Washington. Yeah. <laughs> so, by the way, at the same time that was happening, there was a kind of awakening of to Asian mysticism and various Eastern That's... spiritual traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Zen, uh, Taoism, that uh, particularly was being uh, mediated to the West at this point through uh, Alan Watts, uh, D.T. Suzuki, yes. and others were having an enormous influence. Haridas Chowdhury and Alan Watts had their school here in uh, San Francisco that Ginsburg and Kerouac and Gary Snyder and, and others were part of, and so also Mike Murphy and Dick Price, who went on to found Esalen Institute, uh, came out of that. It was called the Academy of Asian Studies in the 1950s. So there was just a, a kind of vast emergence of this experience happening in different areas of the country and in different parts of the world, and uh, that really set the stage for the psychedelic revolution of the 1960s when the very powerful Uranus-Pluto conjunction took place, the only conjunction of those two planets in the 20th century from approximately 60 to 72, Mm -hmm. was perhaps the most dynamically transformative decade of that century. Yes, yes, yes. Rick, uh, we're sort of coming around in time, and um, I would really like you to talk about the more about the Uranus-Neptune complex in terms of reconnecting with the Earth, the feminine, the reconciliation of opposites. Yes. Well, what I didn't act didn't mention just now in that recounting of the Uranus-Neptune cycle in the 20th century is that the big conjunction of those two planets, which only happens once every, you know, roughly 170 years, uh, that the big conjunction is what has been the defining alignment of these last uh, 20 years, basically from the mid-1980s into the, uh, right through the 90s when it <clears throat> became exact. Mm-hmm. and then a little bit into the 21st century, particularly centering on the later 80s and 90s, that Uranus-Neptune conjunction 
that a kind of spiritual revolution has happened in the world. There's been much more opening to the spiritual dimensions of nature, sense of the uh, feminine dimension of the divine, mm. the Gaia and consciousness of the anima mundi, yes. uh, a powerful impulse uh, to overcome inauthentic barriers and differences in order to uh, achieve a, a deeper underlying unity between human being and cosmos, between uh, what used to be called man and nature, mm-hmm. uh, but is now recognized that that was a very limited way of understanding the human being and mm-hmm. the human being's relationship to that field yes. being that is nature, that is not separate from us, but we really are the cosmos. We really are nature. It's not that we're in the cosmos or we are on the earth. We are the earth. We are the cosmos in human form and with our own particular kind of consciousness. Mm -hmm. We are in some sense the cosmos's vessel of consciousness in the human modality. Mm -hmm. And this gives rise to a sense of greater holism, greater uh, underlying unity, a participation in larger evolutionary and spiritual processes that can be very healing and very transformative for a culture and, and for a worldview that has for quite a while been much more dualistic, much more patriarchally right. um, rigid in its dualisms and fraught with a certain sense of alienation and enchantment. Loneliness. Yes, a kind of cosmic loneliness yes. that, that translates into a, a, a fear-driven greed that can be very exploitative of other people and of, of nature and of the earth. So basically this Uranus-Neptune conjunction that anybody listening to this will have experienced for uh-huh. much of their adult life, certainly, you know, all, as I say, from beginning in the mid-80s and for most of the next 20 years, that was deeply informed by this. So uh, it, it took many different forms, things like the, the globalizing unification that took place through technology of the, of the Internet and cell phones and Google and mm-hmm. all the, the cyberspatial... Newsphere. Interconnect, yes, no, newsphere of, that uh, Teilhard um, predicted. Mm-hmm. Has all that really emerged into our consciousness uh, during that Uranus-Neptune conjunction, and so we've all been shaped by it. It's a it's a an archetypal waveform that will be in many ways unfolding through us and around us for a, a long time. Just as the 1960s Uranus-Pluto conjunction, just because it ended in the around 1972, didn't mean that all those impulses just ended when that alignment was over. In, in fact, it continued in many ways, often even getting more powerful as it did with feminism and ecological movement and so forth that that came out of uh, that decade. So what we've just been going through in the 90s and and had that kind of spiritual, imaginal, esoteric, Gaia, anima mundi oriented Mm -hmm. transformation, that's going to be with us for, for a long time. And I think a great We've had a kind of privilege in having such powerful planetary conjunctions in our time of the outer planets, first in the 60s and then in the uh, 90s, that I think we have a a kind of generational 
responsibility in some sense to engage this very dramatic moment in history that we find ourselves in with all the wisdom and compassion and imagination that we can muster and that in some sense has been enriched by the powerful experiences and transformations that can granted uh, in, in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Well, Rick Tarnas, my last question is sort of a poetic question. I, I want to ask you, how can we nurture a creative participation in a living cosmos? Or, as you say so beautifully, how do we listen to the universe? Well, I, I for myself, have found... A, a couple of paths to be especially beneficial and, and powerful. But I think each person has their own path, uh, and will, each one will kind of get from the universe a different special kind of instructions, as it were, that emerge mm-hmm. in, in their own way. Yeah. So I, what I would be saying for myself is something that I think has been very big in my own life, and mm-hmm. it's been... I know helpful for quite a few other people, but I wouldn't want to um, say that it's universally useful for everybody. But I would just say the most powerful methods that I know for participating more consciously in in the universe's unfolding, one uh, has been through a powerful inner, inner exploration, inner journeys, whatever would be the, the most um, appropriate form for that person. Yes. Uh, for me, it, it has been, and over the years, uh, certainly LSD in the earlier years, and yes. uh, in later years, the ayahuasca and the great yes. ayahuasca shamanic uh, ritual ceremonies that have been coming up from South, South America, rooted in, in Brazil and Peru and so forth. Those mm-hmm. seem to me to be especially valuable and yes but any form of of deep listening to the inner inner world whatever whatever form meditation or, or prayer or um, sacred mushrooms or whatever it happened to be that is certainly one mm-hmm. but somehow by going very deep inside one goes into beyond just your own personal inner world to the inner interior of the cosmos itself they connect Mm-hmm. in us is deep in the universe. Uh, there's no ultimate separation deep in there. Then the other, again, for me, has been especially valuable, has been the understanding of uh, archetypal astrology as a way to illuminate human history and individual lives and my own life and my own psychological predispositions and my own spiritual journey all mm-hmm. have been really amazingly illuminated by using the the means of archetypal astrological analysis. So that's why I wrote Cosmos and Psyche. Yes. Attempting to give a kind of, make a kind of, a work that could be a kind of bridge for others to cross that might find this method valuable for themselves. Okay, okay. So those would be the two that the One's inner and one's outer in some mm-hmm. sense. One involves more uh, interior self-exploration and the other involves careful observation of the cosmos, the 
planets and their alignments in relationship to the patterns of human experience. And those two methods uh, just seem to be especially transformative and helpful for opening up to a more participatory relationship to the universe. Thank you so much, Rick, for your generosity and kindness of words. I simply want to ask you if there is something you would like to add in closing. You know, I think I pretty much uh, covered most of what I think would be helpful here. I, okay. I guess the only thing to add would be I appreciate very much what role you're playing, Joanna, in bringing to more people the kinds of insights that you've been mediating through your interviews like this and your website. So um, thank you for allowing me to be part of it. Thank you with all my heart. Till next time.